0: Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. I have with me, Dan Jeffries. Dan is the Managing Director of the AI Infrastructure Alliance and the former CIO of Stability AI and former Chief Technical Evangelist. At Pachyderm acquired by HPE. He's also an author, engineer, futurist, pro blogger. And he's given talks all over the world on AI and cryptographic platforms. With more than 50,000 followers on Medium and a rapidly growing following on Substack, his articles have been read by more than 5 million people worldwide. So, Dan, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. This conversation is all about AI and you have a terrific Substack that I've been checking out and you're a prolific blogger and and you have great kind of social media content that you put out there. There does seem to be this narrative about, is AI something that we should embrace? We should be worried about? Should it be regulated to death? Or is it somewhere in between? Nobody really seems to, to know what to do with it. We got pushed to Capitol Hill. They clearly are way out of their element trying to address this. You've seen (laughs) Sam Altman do this kind of global whirlwind charm campaign, diplomacy, meet and greet to calm everyone down. But I actually think there's more to that behind the scenes. Where do you land on this whole kind of AI conversation? Is it something we should be worried about? Should we embrace or something in the middle?
1: I mean, look, every technology in history can be used for good, bad, and everything in between right? Everything exists on a continuum of good to evil. And it's a spectrum. It's maybe a little closer to good or evil. To me, AI is right in the center. If I think about a gun, it's more likely on the side of evil. It kills lots of people. It's responsible for war and genocide. But I can also hunt with it and feed my family, right? A lamp might be closer to the side of good because it lights my house and lets me work in the dark, but I could pick it up and hit you over the head with it. So I don't buy this whole narrative where we always think about All the evils of technology or everything that can go wrong if you think about every technology it's nowadays the dominant narrative is everything that can go wrong and i don't know it's easy to see all the like jobs that could be destroyed or whatever but it's very hard to see all the jobs that'll be created like how do you explain a web developer to an 18th century farmer you can't do it it's built on the back of 20 different technologies electricity computers the browser the internet right so there's it's easy to see that and everyone could see the destruction I think AI is tremendously beneficial. Of course, it can do some bad things, but mostly the bad things that people are talking about, they're probably going to be done at the government level. They're going to be done at the totalitarian government, right? And they're already doing it. Surveillance and monitoring dissidents, those kinds of things, using it for war. I don't buy most of the rest of the harms. I buy, somebody said today, it can be used for bioterrorism. I'm like, where is the logic in this? I don't even understand this, right? Like you can already get that information on the web and you still have to be a good chemist and have the wills to do, dispersal and these kinds of things. So this is not new information. So I I find these lines of reasoning to be really like spurious and suspect. I think mostly folks are trying to create a legal moat to lock out the competition. They're trying to create a 1950s style AT&T regulatory moat. I think there's tremendous benefit in this stuff. New material science, teaching kids to learn a language, right? I'm using it to learn Spanish right now. I think the ability to diagnose disease far out in the countryside when you can't get to a good doctor or you don't have the same quality of healthcare. To me, there's so many benefits to this technology. And I think this sort of firestorm right now is just indicative of a time where we tend to feel negative about technology. I think that is a real downer because societies are successful when they embrace new technologies. And as soon as society starts saying, oh my gosh, like We're going to try to keep everything exactly the same. They go downhill and another society that's willing to embrace it rises and takes over. And that's how we've seen it a hundred times in history. And it's going to happen again if we're not careful here. And we're going to miss out on all these wonderful benefits.
0: So I want to go back to your earlier comment about people trying to create a regulatory moat. I tend to agree with you. I think the fact that Sam Altman has created this non-for-profit, but it's actually for profit and there's a lot of organizational structural issues involved with how he's put together the firm I tend to see his whirlwinds campaign across the globe as a way to front run this whole space and to be this savior for Washington oh we can be in safe hands with this person meanwhile they can corner the market and tamp down any potential competition would you agree with that sentiment
1: yeah, I think a number of folks are trying to do this, right? I had a tweet go crazy the other day after I quoted John Carmack, famous programmer, basically invented 3D and is now working on AGI. And he was talking about Mustafa Suleiman's book that just came out the next wave. And there's no wild-eyed fear-mongering in this book, he said. But he said, but the guy is very much a statist. He believes in uh, he expresses concern for the government as much as for individual people. And he basically says at the end of it, we should probably outsource or probably outlaw law open source, high-level AI, and keep it a trade secret. I think these are terrible ideas. Open source has been the most fundamentally game-changing technology in history, right? So Karmic said, I'm not aligned with this. I said, I'm not aligned with this either. I say, this scam of we're the only trusted people who can do this, you should never trust that from anyone ever. That the kings and queens and the old church have been running this scam since the dark ages. We're the only trusted people. I don't buy it. Linux is the most important software in the history of mankind, okay? It runs supercomputers. It runs the entire cloud, right? It runs, like, your home router, right? It, it runs nuclear subs. Yeah, it's also used to write malware and create distributed botnets. Does that mean we take that off the shelf? Because, no, we have laws in place to deal with these things. We have laws in place if you kill someone or you use it for fraud. We don't need a new existence for this. There's some gray areas sometimes that you have to address, but you do that as it actually evolves in the real world. As the problems come up, you develop them rather than trying to anticipate stuff ahead of time that generally doesn't make any sense. And so I think a lot of these folks really, they would love to outlaw the competition. It's really expensive to buy 22,000 H100s. And and there's a lot of R&D that goes into these things. So I don't want to see this kind of thing where you have a licensing regime to build models. I think that is super big brother totalitarian. I never want to see this happen.
0: And the hardware you were referencing, those are chips, correct? Microchips?
1: Yeah. So the, the H100 is the most cutting edge chip from NVIDIA that's used to train these models. They're 30 to 40 grand retail, right? So buying, you can do the math. Uh, you're probably better at the bath than me, but it's not hard to realize that if you're buying all those up, 22,000 of those to train some giant frontier model, it's really expensive. This is not a profitable business at this point build these models, okay? You're eventually going to do what you do, which is, build all kinds of services around this type of thing. You're going to build enterprise software. You're going to build guardrails around things. You're going to build kind of specialized models for individuals that, where they pay a ton of money for it. Just like Google had to build Android and a thousand other kind of businesses, right? and Amazon had to build a bunch of other businesses, this is super, super expensive. So I understand why they would love to lock out the competition, but I don't think that's good for society. And I don't think it's good for the world. And frankly, you don't make things secure that way, right? This idea that we're going to keep it behind the API and 400 people or a thousand people are somehow going to figure out every way that can be exploited. No, that's not the way that it works. The best cryptography in the world is open math. And that's because other mathematicians can look at that and go, wait a minute, I found a flaw. We have to make this stronger. Same way with code, same way with models. Most of this kind of real work that's happening is people now looking at the models that exist, training them, looking at ways to interpret them, looking at ways to make them safer. This happens through openness. It's the foundation of a modern society. It's the foundation of America. It's the foundation of societies that we admire. Closed is the foundation of totalitarian society. So I'm sorry, I'm just not aligned with that. So
0: if you were to advocate for Washington to take a certain stance on this subject, would it just be Open competition, open market, or do you think there should be some guardrails in place?
1: So I think you have to address, I think you have to get past this kind of concept of like harms, where we, we use this term now for everything way too loosely. It's something I don't like on the internet. It's harmed. It harmed me. I don't like your opinion, Brian. You harmed me. I don't really buy this, okay? But there are real harms in the world, okay? And there should be high risk applications. I don't like some of the way that the EU has done it, where like the politics has got into it, right? In terms of their AUI, right? Right. Somehow they got social media applications tossed in in an amendment as high risk. I'm sorry, but that's not true. That's a misuse of a very good idea. But I do buy this idea of high risk. If it's driving a car or operating heavy machinery and can kill people, that's high risk. It should have a higher love standard that it has to adhere to in terms of interpretability, in terms of how you put this thing out there, right, how you test it. Now, if it's being used in military actions, if it's being used for surveillance, these kinds of things we should care about as a society, right? And these things do matter. You have to think about these things. So I think you need a framework to deal with the most egregious types of use cases, right? And you need to be able to think about those kinds of things. You want to address some of the clear kind of challenges of like we're seeing in the courts of, can I train on the open internet or do I need to go license everything from anyone? I think that's a terrible idea too. You know, as... I'm an artist. I learned from Hemingway and everyone else by reading their books. I didn't pay the Hemingway estate to learn how to write a short, sharp sentence. I don't think that I should. I learned as a human learns, and computers learn that way too. So I think we should clarify that so that we can stop with all of these crazy lawsuits. So I do think that there needs to be sound, sane, light touch legislation. But I am not for these big, giant things that are based on science fiction, existential risk. And these kind of trying to anticipate every problem before it happened. Imagine if they tried to do that on the internet, they just would have been flat wrong about everything. And they would have created this huge hurdle that made it impossible for the internet to grow into what it is today with that kind of thing. I don't want to see this happen again. You have to be sound and sane with the legis- you know, legislation that you pass.
0: There does seem to be amongst a certain cohort of people fear mongering. And I do think that some of these people have an agenda that they want to pursue commercially But to your point, there does seem to be this sense in our culture today that risk-taking can be bad and we need to be ultra careful that we don't hurt anyone or offend anybody. But oftentimes that can stand in the way of progress. When it comes to AI, it seems like there should be an elevation of competition because I I do believe it could be a national security issue. And China and, and some other People seem to be putting and allocating a huge amount of resources towards it. What is the current state of play, in your opinion, in terms of where the U.S. is compared with the rest of the world on developing open sourced AI or the technology in general?
1: I think the U.S. is still far ahead of almost everyone. I think the vast majority of the most incredible models have come out. China is doing excellent work as well as they always do, right? But they have a very different approach to those things and they have a very different ideology about how it should be implemented. And if you want to safeguard the sort of the American and the EU and the Canadian way of life, right, the sort of open democracy, then you have to trust in the openness, right? I think too often we've receded into this kind of closed concept that is if we can somehow prevent everything from going wrong in life. And I'm sorry, but it's not the case. It, problems get solved in the real world. And that's the nature of reality. I and mean, take a look at something like airplanes. Okay. So right now they have point like percent crashes out of every million flights. Okay. But in the early days, this was much worse it was something like a one in a hundred thousand or something like that had a tremendous amount of crashes. It took many years of understanding how planes worked in the real world. Yes, people died, right? I mean, this is the nature of reality when you're building things. It, does, it doesn't make it awesome, but it does make it the nature of reality in that people had to go in there and learn what, how planes could go wrong. When you put out the first refrigerators, sometimes they leaked and the gas that was originally in there exposed to the air would light on fire you don't know that until it gets out into the real world and it happens again that doesn't mean that's awesome nobody wants anyone want to suffer or die right that's crazy talk to think that anybody does but that's how engineering problems are solved and so to me much of the you have meta becoming the putting out open source models you have a number of other organizations that are out there doing and a number of independent research organizations. The US is leading that way. You're starting to see more actually in Europe as well with Minstrel and uh, those kinds of folks coming out and starting to push in that direction as well. I think it has to be open societies and democracies that push this. And that's the best way to ensure with a lot of people looking at it and messing with it where the innovation comes from. I'll give you an example. So, you know, with Stable Diffusion, a ton of which is the open source image generating model, a ton of the innovation came from the community. They were fine-tuning models. They were doing things that data scientists never thought of, jamming together and averaging out 30, 40, 50, 100 models. The Data scientists, a lot of them thought that would just collapse or destroy the model, but it was making a better model, right? And then they were adapting papers that were used for other things. So the LoRa paper was designed for large language models to make it easier to train a small subset of the parameters. So instead of training a 10 gigabyte model, I can train 100 megabytes and change that model. They adapted that to stable diffusion. I even saw the original paper writer on there on Reddit asking questions going, wow, I never thought of this. I want to talk with the community to understand what I can change to make the next version because I never even considered diffusion models. That's what happens when you put it in the real world. You get this innovation. You have people who weren't able to pass through the gauntlet, the eye of the needle to get into the hallowed halls to do the original work. But that work gets refined by the engineers. The first person who comes up with the process for making nitrates right in Germany, it looked like a Rube Goldberg machine. That's not a manufacturable machine. What happens with that processator is the engineers figure out how to make it into a reusable set of components, how to make it safer, how to turn it into a machine that gets manufactured. That happens when you expose it to a lot of different people. I think the same thing has to happen here. We can't imagine all the, the things before they happen.
0: You wrote an article or a blog post rather almost a year ago to the day of this recording with the title of the turning point for truly open AI is now. And there's a subtitle, truly open source AI is the future, but some folks are trying to kill it in its crib because they secretly want to keep all the power for themselves. Now we touched on the subtitle, but I want to go back to the actual title itself that you wrote about a year ago. Do you think you got it right? And where are we today?
1: So it certainly was the beginning of it with stable diffusion. And now we're starting to see new models like Llama on the LLM side of the house. But that was like the first powerful model that was released to the public with open source weights. And there was a whole like firestorm around it. Like, right? oh my God, like we're, people are just creating images, right? And they're, you know, now we haven't, you know, these horrible things that everyone predicted, they haven't really come to pass, right? It's just people in general want to do good things and occasionally people do bad things. Then there's laws against that, right? In my opinion, that was the beginning of stable diffusion. And that has sparked a whole series of open source models, especially in the LLM space, and a lot of experimentation on that, right? And you started to see all this stuff come out of Stanford and people figuring out how to use even the frontier models like chat GPT to train A smaller model that can fit on a phone or on a desktop GPU for inference. The large models, like that existed before that, they run on like sixteen-way H100 clusters. Right, you're not going to run this in a normal data center. They're outside the reach of normal companies to be able to run these things other than via API. So this kind of open source work that's crunching them down, making them smaller while still retaining much of their capability. That's because those folks are trying to make it work you know, on lesser hardware, those kinds of things. That comes out of the open source research. So I do think it's now, but I think the fight is really starting to kick up. I've seen a lot of, myself protesters the other day outside of Meta saying like, well, you, you shouldn't open source those models. Again, that they're arguing, they, they are probably the same folks that were arguing that Meta was suppressing them with the algorithm and telling and being opaque. Now they're out there saying, Oh my God, we've got to make sure nobody gets their hands on this because someone might do a bad thing. Look, we don't take Photoshop off the market because somebody can put a celebrity head on a naked body. Like 99.9% of the people are going to do things with Photoshop. A kitchen knife cuts vegetables. Yes, yeah, so I can stab you with it. So we're going to take kitchen knives off the market because of the one person who can stab someone? No, that person goes to jail for stabbing. <laughs> the rest of us get to cut vegetables. So I, I do think that that fight is starting up again now. There aren't any really good provisions for the EU, the AI Act, as it currently stands. I haven't seen any provisions about that. I've seen Clem from Hugging Face, who is wonderful, really talking about open source. There's not enough people advocating for it, but I am starting to see a ton of the people out there on Twitter and social media is pushing for that thing. So I'm hopefully that there is a groundswell, of kind of sound sane people to get there and counteract this kind of narrative that we've got to keep it all behind closed doors.
0: So do you believe you use Facebook as an example? You could draw a parallel with Google. These groups have really, in a lot of ways, become the entire market for what they do. Do you feel like they should be regulated to a higher standard or that politics should, politicians should step in and have deeper oversight into their activities and how they make money and what they do with our data?
1: So this is a tough question. I think the obvious answer is yes, but it's also challenging, right? Because the politics get involved and big tech in and itself becomes a rival for government power itself. And power doesn't like other power. It's as simple as that. So sometimes I'm on the side of the tech companies and sometimes I'm on the side of the governments. When a government wants to censor a bunch of information and the tech companies basically refuse to do it because they cross borders, I'm in favor of the tech companies. I'm sorry. But at the same time, Tech companies over time, they went from small tech like the revolution in my youth and every politician falling over themselves to make sure they got all the help that they need to big tech, which means that they're going to sometimes do things we don't like. Cory Doctorow has a great post called The Enchidification of TikTok. And he talks about every platform goes through a series of steps as it grows, atrophies, or dies. And in the beginning, they make everything go viral. It's all about the peer-to-peer it's all about the network effect. After a while, basically, then they start pushing in kind of the corporate sponsors and getting all the money over there. And then you see less of what you wanted to see because every time you see something, that's one eyeball less, something that you want to see. That's one less time that they can show you something they want you to see. And then, then when it starts to decline is when they try to screw over their kind of corporate folks as well and claw back all the value for themselves. And you see this over and over again with a lot of platforms, right? I saw it on Medium. I had 50,000 followers on there before I switched to Substack. They used to help me go viral. I'd get a million views on things and then they try to clamp down on it so that you could buy the subscription and put everything by the paywall. Now I get 1,000, 100 on there. So I switch. I saw it recently on Twitter where like I'd get hundreds of thousands of views on something or 10,000 views on something. Suddenly I was getting 100, right? And and Cory Doctor was getting that too. It switched back somehow in the last few days, maybe because I had a viral post but for a while, no matter how many followers I had, I was getting that because they were trying to make sure that you would advertise. Facebook did that. You used to be able to go totally viral. And then all of a sudden they were like, hey, that post is looking really good. I'm only showing it to 10% of the people who follow you and I'm going to crush it and say, hey, do you want to boost that? So there's a lot of things I don't love about big tech, but it's part of the nature of the economics of it. I do think that that the government needs to get involved in some aspects of these things, but I haven't really liked the, the way in general that they've have done it. In other words, like, you have to be incredibly clear-minded, pragmatic, and clear thinking in order to regulate these things in an intelligent way. Right? And Too often what I see is like, giant politics that don't really solve anything. Like Think about the GDPR. Right? As far as I can tell, the only thing that GDPR has done is make every website in the world ugly with a stupid pop-up that I have to click every time.
0: What can you tell people what GDPR is? Yeah. yeah, sorry. yeah
1: the, the general data protection act, right. And it generally meant you have to disclose to people what you're doing with their data, right. And you have to take certain protections. Usually it meant keeping the data instead of like in a distributed network that's like resilient around the world, keeping it locally, which meant all these giant companies had to now build data centers locally. And not because that's a better like strategy for data replication or resilience, but because local governments want to be able to go in and rate those services if they needed to. So I think there's always like these two opposing forces when you're trying to regulate something, the desire of kind of the people and the desire of the government and the intelligence of the regulator, the intelligence of the experts that they have in there, right? And the GDPR basically all it ended up doing is forcing every site to have this pop-up that says, hey, we're going to make cookies or we're going to have an advertisement. Doesn't everybody know at this point that like your ads follow you around? Is this really the end of the world? I don't think so, but now every website has this. I find it tremendously annoying and I don't think it's really solved anything.
0: Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success. Which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management and financial services firms that serve ultra high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at www.macinternational.com. So do you think the EU is a better framework to use moving forward?
1: I'm not sure. I will say, living in the EU now, I have an appreciation for a lot of the things that they do. And they do have a unique system in that you end up with these kind of coalition governments as opposed to one or two parties where you're like, the party I hate is in power. And then eight years later, the other power I hate even more is in power. And then it swings back, right? And that kind of worked for a while. It doesn't really, it seems to be atrophying in the United States at this point, unfortunately. Now, whereas the EU, a lot of times you get these smaller parties and then they have to form a coalition because they don't form a, like a 50 or 60% monopoly. So that does bring in a diversity of perspectives, which I think is very interesting. And I do think that they have shown more of a willingness to think about at least the data protections or like overreach of these different companies. I'm just not sure that, effect, that, they, I'm not sure that the outcome of that though has been particularly effective. Right? Again, I don't think the GDPR is particularly effective and it's made a lot of websites ugly. I'm very skeptical of the EU AI Act. I think it's. I think some of the framework is very good in terms of high risk. But again, I think you have to really. You can't allow politics to get into what classifies something as high risk, because then it just becomes well, I don't like this company, so they're high risk. You know, it has to be like no. If people's lives, for instance, you have to have very clear criteria. If people's lives are in danger, or it's performing surgery, or like it's creating drugs for pharmaceutical uh, research. These kinds of things are high risk. Whether I get to see an ad for a backpack or shoes on TikTok, it's not high risk. I'm sorry, it's not. You may not like TikTok, but it's not high risk. I think these kinds of things have to be taken soundly. I think they, the U has done a slightly better job than 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 the US, but I think sometimes it's overreaching. Uh, and I'm afraid that the UI Act is gonna stifle open source and I think it's gonna stifle you know some competition. I think the regulatory burden is gonna become incredibly challenging. And I think the big companies are great at having an army of slick-yard lawyers and smaller companies are going to have trouble complying. And I think that's a travesty. I think we should let the technology develop and then figure out what the actual harms are and then pass something. I don't like the concept of coming up with everything that can potentially go wrong ahead of time, the prescriptive principle versus the principle of let's let actual harms happen and then say, hey, wait a minute, there's a gray area here. We shouldn't allow this.
0: I want to hear your thoughts or explanation of what AI agents are and we should care about them?
1: To me, I take a pretty broad view of agents, but I would say they're really smart applications and they're essentially artificial intelligence applications that can do things in the real world. Now the real world might be with robotics or it might be like just in the digital world. I meaning it can go click on websites and read them. For instance, the infrastructure alliance, we wrote a number of agents and we wrote one that goes out and does research for us. So we can feed it an air table of two or 3,000 companies that we're looking at, filter them down, and it'll go out, it'll read all the websites, it'll summarize those websites, and it'll score them and tell us who to contact, who um, to potentially join our organization. And to me, that's an agent. A lot of people are thinking of agents as fully autonomous, so they tend to think of no GPT baby AGI. Unfortunately, I think those things are a really good idea that's a little too far ahead. They skipped a step. They skipped this kind of do a few things really well. Or like these kind of human in the loop steps. We went from, oh, the LLM is really performant. GPT is performant. I can talk to it It feels human to her in people's minds, right? Where they're like, okay, I'm going to tell it to go build me a marketing plan, do all the research, write the outreach emails, summarize the competition, send those emails and let me know how it goes. I'm sorry, but we're not there yet. Now we may get there, uh, but we're not there yet. I don't know what year we get there. I don't know how long it takes. I don't know if we're missing some technology, but... Along the way, there are agents that can just do things in the real world, and you're starting to see these sort of more limited agents that can do really interesting things, right? And they may just be a pipeline of different models and code in the background. You look at a company like Rask can do localization in 60 different languages in the voice of the person who is speaking. So there's three or four models and some code behind behind the scenes to do that. That's very effective and very cool. Research agents, these kinds of things are it's just incredibly effective. So I think we're going to have a whole swarm of these things doing lots of different work and they're going to lower the barrier to entry for people. So if I think about something like Rask that does the localization, it's something like $500 to do 25,000 minutes worth of, of video, right? I talked to a friend of mine and she said that like at her company it costs $10,000 to do five seconds of video in three languages. Now, That means that most small companies and groups are never going to localize. So if you made a series of tutorial videos, Brian, and you put them out there, maybe you make five tutorial videos on, I don't know, talking to family offices or whatever it is, your kind of expertise, you wouldn't localize those in Chinese and Spanish or else. It'd just be too expensive for you. right? So the larger companies are still going to use a lot of these kind of companies because it won't be perfect. And maybe you still need to hire a sound engineer and a voice actor to fix up some of the things it messes up. But if it gets you 80% of the way there and lets you localize in all those areas, suddenly these things become super, super cool. So I think really people are going to have a tremendous amount of agents doing things in the real world, doing research, sorting through resumes and telling me which of these candidates fit the criteria, dumping those into greenhouse, building out parts of websites, automating part of the code, looking for bug, bugs and writing fixes and testing those fixes. These kinds of things are really going to accelerate the whole world and and be able to allow people at a much smaller scale to scale, which I think is just bloody fantastic.
0: Yeah. I I didn't even know what an AI agent was, frankly, until I started reading some of your stuff. So I, I think it's important for people to understand just what they are and what they do. And you'll probably hear a lot more about them moving forward. So I appreciate you providing some commentary there. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the technical side, then I want to get into some more softer issue. But The singularity, this concept that man and machine will meld into one and we will achieve a next level of consciousness or potentially species. What are your thoughts around that? Do you think what we've seen in the AI world is a precursor to this next step or where are we on that journey? Do you even think it's possible?
1: So it transhumanism and things like that as a sci-fi author. I love this kind of stuff. I think it's a lot of fun to write about. I think it's fun. I'm semi-skeptical on it though at this phase of my existence, right? I think it's, there was, you know, a lot of sci-fi writers start off with the singularity because it's great. It's this super conflict. It's this, you can build mind-blowing technology. It's alternative societies. And then later on, you've got sci-fi. I think there was a couple sci-fi writers who I loved as kids who were writing about it very seriously. They wrote a book called. Uh, I forget who wrote it, Rapture of the Nerds. And it was a satire, on meaning it's kind of religion for engineers and, and tech people. And I admit to have, uh, enjoying some of the concepts of it. I think it's life extension and all these kinds of things are wonderful. I think it's probably pretty overblown, though. And we've seen this kind of rapid progress in artificial intelligence. I don't see this kind of runaway intelligence. There is exponentialism, but exponentialism takes different forms, right? And when we think of intelligence, we tend to just personify it and think of it as, okay, you can make a superhuman intelligence. There's a reason that there's not really any intelligence examples on earth that are good at everything. Like intelligence is highly specialized and we tend to think of humans as that. And so we think of AI as just a potential superhuman thing in the future where it's good at every single thing. Not sure that I see that and probably not for a long time, if it were even possible. If I, Think of a squirrel. They might not think of a squirrel as intelligent. Try to keep that squirrel out of your garden. You're going to find out that's an intelligence that's highly optimized for getting into your garden, right? And it's outwitting you, supposedly much smarter kind of creature. So look, I think we get these rapid developments. I think we get more advances in biotechnology and kind of longevity and food sustainability, transportation, et cetera. Does it get to the point where we're like super cyborgs or living to a thousand? So I've seen these like, Things where people are like, it's two years away now. It's five years away. I'm going, and I don't know what you are smoking, but it's not. And that's cool. I'll see you in five years. I've got a track record of predicting things pretty accurately. So I'll take you that bet from anyone. (laughs) We're now five years away from the the singularity. So I don't think anyone needs to be worrying about it. And frankly, if we got there, I think we just crossed that bridge when we came to it, just like everything else in life.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about some of your personal journey, if you're open to it. You've written extensively about some of the, I don't like this term, but self-improvement or self-actualization or changes that you've gone through to try to better your life physically, emotionally. And they really track pretty closely to some of the changes that I've made personally. If you don't mind setting up, like, where were you How did that feel? What were the changes you made? And then how has that improved your life across both kind of personally and professionally?
1: So it's cool. I'm I'm glad you brought this topic up. Not everybody does. I've talked about it on a few different podcasts specifically for that. I've read a book called Mastering Depression and Living the Life that You Were Meant to Live. I've been very open about being depressed or angry as a youth and trying to just find a way to change my perspective and be really excited about life and positive and optimistic about those things. But without losing realism, right. without losing the ability to say, yeah, there are things that can go wrong. There are real problems. But to have clarity of seeing what's actually there, I think that's incredibly hard in life. And there were a number of books that I read along the way, and, but personal experiences I read too. I've been open about being into the various Jim McKenna books, and his books are a lot about seeing life as it actually is and not how you imagine it to be. And I think most of us, we're not, LLMs are not the only things that hallucinate. We tend to hallucinate a lot of belief systems and structures that aren't really there to the point that people will die for them. I have a friend who, you know, even with cancer late in life and throat, was still smoking cigarettes and drinking, right? And refusing to acknowledge any of the kind of choices that she made. I think that life is really about those choices. And what and I spent a lot of time looking at self-help literature and New Age literature all that, and I got really disillusioned with it in much the same way that sort of McKenna did, right? And the reason is because it's mostly telling you to just stay in one place. It's telling you what you want to hear. It's telling you you don't need to do anything. You're already enlightened. You're already calm and cool. You just haven't gotten there. If you just think positively, everything's going to work out. I'm sorry, but it's not. You could meditate five hours a day, but if you're trapped in a shitty relationship with an abusive partner or you hate your job that you're going to every day, it doesn't matter how often you meditate. It's not going to change anything. You have to get out of that damn job. You have to get rid of that relationship, but you have to take the hard steps in the real world, you have to rip that tree out of the ground, which is painful. It causes all kinds of rocks, and it's messy. Rocks and soil and everything is going to fly everywhere when you rip your life up like that. I did that with my relationship, and it caused a lot of pain. I lost some things, and I gained some things. And then at that time, I went back, and I looked at myself, and I thought, like, Jesus, how do I contribute to all of these problems? What did I contribute? How do I attract the wrong person? And what was my part and when our, when the relationship sucked? When was I an asshole when was i the person that like wasn't caring and those kinds of things and i thought how can i work on that and then i spent a lot of time doing that so before i found my next partner where i was able to meet a person who was of equal maturity level and that relationship is is fantastic my wife now we and we fight 10 minutes every couple of months and we're quick to back down and say you know what i did this i was wrong about it and not escalate those things and now we have to talk about it right now you did this and remember when you did this in 1976 it's just a matter of like, we're not trained on any of this stuff in life. We're not trained to think clearly. We're not trained to see problems that are really there versus ones that are imaginary. We're not trained to make real changes in the real world. The, the entire spiritual new age marketplace is about just sitting at the foot of the guru and listen and meditate for forever and everything will be fine. It won't be. I'm sorry, but it won't. Uh, the real change is made in the real world and you have to take action. It's not a very popular message. I would say a lot of the times The stories that I have that go super wide are not the ones where I'm like, hey, if you want to be healthy, you probably have to think about eating healthy and working out, right? If you want to have a different relationship, you probably have to leave that relationship, figure out why you suck and then improve yourself so that you can find another relationship. If you don't like your job, you may have to go train yourself to do something completely different because you may have to change your field, right? These are not things that anybody wants to hear, right? They want to hear if I just by this tape and listen to affirmations or whatever. It's not that affirmations are useless; they're just, but they're useless without action in the real world. And I think those messages are not very popular, but they're gratifying to the people who do find them. So there's always a small subset of people who are like, "Wow, that was, you know, uh, this is." I'm super thankful for that you took the time to write this, and this was super important to me. So I don't care whether a million people read it. I care if like the 5,000 people who really needed to hear it, read that part. And my other posts can, a million people can read <laughs> that are easier to, to go <laughs> to grok.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. And I, I agree with you. I know my own journey. when People ask, well, you look great. You sound great. You seem like you're in a good place. What did you do? And I always tell them, it's not like one thing, it's everything. Yeah. And it's this constellation of things that require a lot of work typically. And, most people just want like the silver bullet, the pill. And it just doesn't work like that, unfortunately.
1: I'll buy that pill if that ever comes out. I think everyone will, but it's just not real. Yeah.
0: yeah. Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Definitely encourage our listeners to leave a review, leave a comment, let us know the favorite part of the conversation. If people are interested in learning more about the work that you do, the content that you're putting out there. I know you're on various social media platforms, but what's the best way for them to engage?
1: Oh, there's my Substack. It's probably one of the best. Uh, it's uh, future history with Dan Jeffries. playing out Infrastructure Alliance is my nonprofit where we put out a lot of information on AI. There's my Twitter. It's Dan underscore Jeffries one, the number one. Don't forget the one, or you will meet another Dan Jeffries who studies the asexual reproduction of tree frogs. A wonderful fellow if you're into the asexual reproduction of tree frogs. But if you're interested in finding me, you want to find Dan underscore Jeffries one on Twitter.
0: Maybe we'll do a a part two with him (laughs) and we'll get into, we'll get into the tree frog world. I don't know much about it. So I can stand to, to level up there. Dan, thank you so much. One final question we ask folks that come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life?
1: The daily practice is I try to stop and I try to remember the things that are good in in my life. I have, for instance, I have a view of an absolutely gorgeous landmark outside of my window in my house. And it's really easy to just start taking that thing for granted, take that view for granted and look at it and say, who cares, right? I try to make myself stop and try to say, hey, really look at that thing. And go, man, isn't that cool? Aren't you lucky to have had that happen in your life? It won't be here forever. One day you'll move. And I so appreciate the thing while you're there. So I do try to stop and appreciate the things that I have in my life and make sure that I'm grateful for those things.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the show. This is great. Best of luck Thanks. with, yeah, best of luck with all the work. It's important and you're really educating a broad population on some things that they need to know about. So thank you for all you do and best of luck moving forward.
1: Thank you, sir. appreciate you having me on.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode.
1: Hold up. What was that?